Rusty Quill presents. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary Freaknik: The Wildest Party Never Told about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. My guess is you know what I'm talking about. Most of you, my dear listeners, are probably listening to this in the background of some banal task. You're driving yourself to work, the kids to school, you're out mowing the lawn or sitting on a cold bench waiting for the train to finally show. But like most people in this modern world, you're somebody with some place to be and something to do. And it's hard sometimes, the way the days begin to flit by as you stack dollars and pay bills. As your hair grays and the days disappear until one day, it's like your whole life is behind you. But the grind, the grind never slows. My name is Tyler Bell, and I'd like to welcome you to the third season of The West Side Fairy Tales, a monthly horror anthology written, read, and produced by yours truly. Today's story is about a man trapped in that same grind by his own desire to become the master of the great millstone itself. But his preoccupation with success is getting to him, coloring every new day a darker shade than the last. Before we get to today's episode, I'd like to throw a few recommendations your way. Listeners familiar with the program know I usually do a book and a podcast recommendation, but this season I'm going to change things up just a tad. Every month I'm going to tell you about a book, as part of what I'm sort of calling the West Side Book Club. And I've got a new West Side Fairy Tales discussion group where you and anybody else who wants to, can jump in and talk about the episodes, the book of the month, or any old horror-related thing that comes to mind. Also, instead of doing a podcast recommendation every month, I'm going to have a free, anything-I-can-think-of horror recommendation. That might be movies, video games, or really anything else that comes to mind that I think you guys might enjoy. Horror is an incredibly diverse genre that spreads over all kinds of media, and I can't really name all my inspirations as a writer without mentioning a few composers, video game designers, comic book artists, painters, and, well, 
a whole host of random people that have contributed to my oddness over the decades. This month's book recommendation is Uzumaki by Junji Ito. Junji Ito is, by far, one of my biggest influences in the horror genre, and Uzumaki, which means spiral in Japanese, is one of his most bizarre and influential works. This graphic novel takes readers to the beleaguered town of Kurozucho in Japan, a small, bizarre village cursed by spirals. Two teenagers in the town begin to notice multiple deadly phenomena associated with spirals, and are quickly forced to survive horrific event after horrific event as the plot, quite literally, spirals out of control. It's an absolutely stunning book, both visually and narratively. I recently bought the omnibus copy that contains the entirety of the story, and reread it for the first time in years. It still holds up, and Ito's creepy imagery never fails to deliver, even if you've already seen it a dozen times. Absolutely check this one out. This week's random recommendation is one of my favorite horror movies of all time, Jacob's Ladder. This title is closely tied with another from my absolute favorite horror movie, but I'll save that one for a later episode. Jacob's Ladder is a subtly deranged film from start to finish. Ostensibly, it's the story of a Vietnam veteran, Jacob, played by Tim Robbins, suffering odd illnesses and hallucinations years after returning from war and taking a job as a postman. There are deeper influences at work in Jacob's life, however, and things get steadily more insane until the lines between dream and reality blur absolutely. Jacob's Ladder is replete with iconic horror imagery, and any fan of the genre is absolutely missing out if they haven't seen this one. If you like a good, bizarre horror story that'll leave you weirded out for days, check out Jacob's Ladder. You won't regret it. Now, without further ado, today's story. Quarterly Review Screeching intercom static drew the masses of sleepy eyes from their computer screens to the welded steel observation deck suspended overhead. Director Yoshimoto stood at his usual perch amongst the gantries holding up the platform. They spread out around him like black spider lace, flying up into the darkness behind the sodium arc lights, where some tradesman or another had bolted them into place long before Jinichiro Sato was born. Nobody who'd helped construct the Amagashi tenancy and mortgage building was alive anymore. In fact, people didn't build buildings very often anymore. There was simply no room and not enough skilled laborers in the city to bring the project to completion. They'd have to meet the provisions to live in City 17 anyway, forcing more valuable citizens, people like Jinichiro, for instance, to move down the chain to some slum like City 16 or 14, an intolerable inconvenience. Please, everybody, can you turn your attention to Director Yoshimoto? a voice said from the intercom speakers beyond the gantry. To Jinichiro, the platform and its floating suspension looked like a great, stylized eye floating over them all. He said silent prayers to nameless gods that the eye was focused on him, that all his hard work would finally be noticed. Perhaps the other workers felt the same thing when they looked up to Director Yoshimoto at the end of every month. Jinichiro didn't much care about what happened to the people on the other side of the crisp, green, cubicle walls around him. They were merely the people he walked into work alongside, people who dressed like him and spoke like him, and got their hair cut in one of the three or four respectable ways. He liked his haircut best, though after a week or so it was indistinguishable from the other men in the office. 
There was a shifting of cloth and body that resonated through the labyrinthine workspace as everybody turned their heads to Director Yoshimoto. He raised one hand in greeting, his palm flat and facing forward, looking to Junichiro like a sort of froggy Buddha. The director was short and round-bodied, and age had made his face flat and jowly. A frog in the web of a spider. What fly could survive such a challenge? Jinichiro thought unexpectedly. He cleared his throat, embarrassed by the sudden poeticism. A holdover from youthful auspices he'd long since left behind. An unprofitable thought, his father would say. He scolded himself. I am proud to announce that this quarter has shown numbers above and beyond the expectations of our shareholders, Yoshimoto said, frog lips curling up at the sides in a smile that also closed his eyes. He dipped his head forward in a slight bow. I am honored to have inspired such an incredibly talented workforce to strive for such great heights. On cue, the entire workforce in question stood and bowed deeply in return. Thank you, Director Yoshimoto, they said in unison. Jinichiro couldn't feel his own words as he said them, swallowed as they were by the crowd. Though it was uncouth, he always tried to speak a little louder than the others. He wanted his voice to shine out amongst the rabble, but it never seemed to happen. Now, in light of this great accomplishment, I invite every one of you to applaud as I announce our three most dedicated employees for the last three months, Yoshimoto said. Jinichiro held his breath as the names were read off the list. Kai Toshi, Renda Higashikata. He crossed his fingers on both hands, crushing them in his fists and again whispering prayers up into the void. Anything. Anything. Just let them notice me. Let them see how hard I work. Yoshi Usubata had won Employee of the Month during the last quarterly review. Just a few days later, he'd been invited upstairs and given a new title and a new office. He had become Mr. Usubata, instead of just Yoshi or Usubata, like the rest of them. He was somebody. He was real. Sakura Kuzo, Yoshimoto said, reading off the last name. He stuffed the note he'd been reading off of back into the pocket of his white button-up shirt pushing aside a set of patterned brown suspenders to do so. Jinichiro felt himself disconnect from his body and float up to the ceiling, disappearing into the darkness. He'd wanted to buy suspenders like that when he moved up to middle management. When you were middle management, when you were somebody, you left your suit jacket on the back of your chair and walked around in suspenders and shirt sleeves. When you were director, you rolled those sleeves up to your elbow. Jinichiro clenched his teeth so hard he felt something give painfully in his jaw. He hissed and turned back to his monitor, raising a shaking hand to his mouth. He was horrified to see blood and a small chunk of molar fall onto his palm. He looked around hurriedly, hoping nobody had seen, and grabbed his wastebasket off the floor. He folded the cracked tooth up into a piece of paper and shoved it in his pocket, then spit several mouthfuls of blood into the wastebasket. Director Yoshimoto quit his podium and the workday resumed. Junichiro forced himself to focus on his work despite the ache of the broken tooth. His head was swimming by the time the night bell rang, announcing sundown and the end of the generic workday. Normally, he'd stay despite the ringing bell, pushing himself to inflate his numbers and increasing his chances of being noticed for the Employee of the Month award, but his mouth hurt too bad. The numbers and the letters on his computer screen faded in and out of focus, and he found himself correcting as many mistaken entries as he made correct entries. Shit, he said under his breath. He thought of the employees who'd proven themselves today. 
who would be tomorrow asked up to lunch with the bosses, who by next week might be wearing their suspenders out in their new offices, being asked questions by underlings and making important decisions. Shit, he said under his breath. Shit, shit, shit. Janitro stood and made his way to the clock outline, where some of the less dedicated employees were already sharing low conversations and laughing about whatever slackers laughed about. He tried not to make a show of how badly his jaw hurt him as he swiped his time card, but the merest twitch of his head was like pushing nails into his neck and eyes. Junichiro? A voice asked from his left. Junichiro turned to see Mike Romanovich waving him over to a group of co-workers. Junichiro looked longingly to the exit and then grudgingly walked to Mike. Being impolite would be poor form, and he didn't want it to circulate that he could be a bore. Hello, Romanovich, Junichiro said. He greeted the few others he recognized, including Sakura Kuzo, the bland-looking woman who'd won the last employee of the month slot for this quarter. Most of the others didn't even notice him, being too busy fawning over Sakura. She made a show of demurring from their compliments and giving slight nods of her head here and there. We're going to the Gilded Lily, Romanovich said to Janichiro. The way he stood, in front of the crowd around Sakura, his head framed by the limits of Junichiro's eyes made Junichiro feel that Romanovich was saying, We are going to Gilded Lily, but not you, Mr. Sato. You're not wanted or welcome, underachiever. Would you like to come? Romanovich asked. Junichiro blinked. He almost blurted a no, but the sudden movement of his jaw to say the word caused a jolt of pain so sharp and bright it almost blinded him. Then he thought of Sakura Kuzo and how he might hear her secrets for success while she drowned herself in alcohol on everybody else's tab. Maybe he'd even see her get too drunk and puke, or embarrass herself, or go home with somebody beneath her station. Sure, Janichiro muttered, quickly adding, Thank you for the invitation. The Gilded Lily was one of a thousand gimmick bars that dotted the red-light district of City 17. Armed police checked their identification as they passed from the financial district, where they worked, onto streets filled with color and people. The strobe of neon lights pouring shadows here and there over the cityscape in this area always made Janichiro feel somewhat sick, unbalanced. Romanovich led the way through the throng of drunken reprobates crowding the front of the bar, most of them dressed in the drab khaki uniform pants and blue button-ups of the civil service. Janichiro was disgusted to see actual homeless people panhandling in the alley between two buildings. He looked around to see if city officials would come and sweep them up, but nothing happened. His co-workers found seats in a closed booth in the back, complete with a great circular table of golden hammered steel. Clever slots in the middle of the thing opened when they made their orders, lifting pitchers of beer and mixed drinks to where they could reach. Janichiro tried to shift closer to the center of the booth as they took their drinks, hoping to get closer to Sakura, but the others crowded her first. Instead, he was stuck beside Kato, a programmer, something of the sort, who leered at passing women with half-lidded eyes. Look at this one, he muttered to Janichiro so he could hear him. She's a whore. Really? Look at those tits. Fake. Big and fake. Janichiro tried to scoot away from him and regretted how he'd trapped himself in the booth half between Sakura and this demented pervert. The only good thing in his life right then seemed to be the cold flow of beer over his cracked tooth. Big fake fucking titties, Kato muttered. 
fake, just like this stupid bitch here. Fake fucking bitch. Cato turned to look at Sakura and Jinichiro followed his eyes. Should watch what you're saying, he whispered harshly. She's right there. Cato laughed and hiccuped. Fuck you, Jinichiro, he said. You don't know shit. You're a tryhard, aren't you? I can tell. In fact, he burped. I know. You're a drunken idiot, Jinichiro snapped, though something of what Kato had just said had crawled into his stomach and soured it. Yeah, Kato said. And you're a tryhard. I've seen the numbers. Numbers? Jinichiro asked. The numbers, Kato said. Your numbers, your productivity. How much work you get done, the stuff that goes up to the bosses, that's, that's what I do. I collate the numbers. Jinichiro blinked at him. He'd never thought there was somebody who actually did something like that. Worse, this sloppy, disgusting drunk did it. This piece of shit was responsible for reporting his hard work to management. Kato grinned at him. You do all that work, you never know how you stack up against the others, right? He said. Well, she did. And that's how she won Employee of the Month. What? I gave that fake bitch access to the numbers. So all she had to do was work a little bit harder than the next hardest worker. It's easy when you can see where you are, pace yourself, and outwork somebody who had no idea what their standing even is. You're lying. Nope, Kato said, smiling across the table at Sakura and raising his glass. She shot him a hateful look that lasted less than half a second, and Kato chuckled. Then he saw that Janitro had seen the look too and laughed outright. I told you. Why? Because she said she'd fuck me, the fake bitch. Kato grumbled. I wanted to play with those perky little titties. But then she fucking reneged on the deal and what am I going to do? Hire some debt collector to bring in a fuck I mode? Rape her? I thought about it, but I just lose my job. So there she sits. Fucking bitch. Janichiro sat staring at Kato, the ugly little man. He was like a goblin with a rounded plug of a nose, crooked teeth, and stringy, thinning hair. Kato laughed when he saw what Janichiro was thinking and shook his head. I don't want to fuck you, Kato said. So you're shit out of luck. He turned back to the women passing the booth, commenting on their fake titties and muttering to himself what he wanted to do with them. Jinichiro looked at Sakura and thought he could see it, really see it, the lie behind her success. She caught his eyes and he could see something else as well. Smug satisfaction. She was better than him, and both of them knew it. If she had gamed the system, all the more reason to celebrate. Anything, Jinichiro said under his breath, still looking at Sakura. She had turned her eyes away from him, if they had ever been on him at all. What you got, I don't want, Kato said. Simple as that. Janichiro watched another of the waitresses pass, Kato's gaze lingering on the woman so long that Janichiro could almost feel the clothes being burned off her body. He pulled his wallet out and looked inside at the tiny pink plastic key he'd stowed in there months ago. Another ill-fated trip with his colleagues after the last round of Employee of the Month awards had failed to go his way. He sighed. Excuse me, everybody, he said to the table. People broke their gazes to look at him with audible reluctance. Sakura favored him with an indolent smile, 
He bowed his head. I have to excuse myself early. I made an appointment with Cato that I nearly forgot about. My apologies for my rudeness. The others grumbled and waved forgiving hands at him, and he stood and dragged Cato out the front door, dropping a handful of rubles on the table as he left. The fuck are you taking me? Cato asked, looking around them as the red light district's lights thinned and faded. The gimmick bars and karaoke bars and restaurants disappeared, replaced by foreboding steel doors with signs reading private or by invitation only, written thickly stroked scarlet kanji. Hey, 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 we're, uh, we're going a little too far, huh? Where do you think you're going, dumbass? Just a bit further, Jinichiro said. Shut up or you'll fuck everything up. Cato made as though to keep speaking, but decided against it, out of curiosity more than obedience. A few minutes later, they stood before a simple bamboo door with a brass signboard on the doorframe. It read simply, Kashimura Group. Jinichiro rapped on the door. Does that say? Cato said, leaning in to get a better look. He paled when he read the name in full, turning to walk away before Jinichiro grabbed his shirt collar and dragged him back. Stop being an idiot. You'll embarrass us both, Jinichiro said. The alcohol was beginning to wear off and he could feel the aching tooth again. Kato tried to stammer out a protest, but the door opened before he could say anything. Two heavily tattooed men in suits stepped outside, followed by an old woman in an elaborately layered kimono. She held a thin-stemmed pipe between the fingers of her left hand, that same elbow buried in her waist for support, as though the pipe were the heaviest thing on earth. What? She asked, passing bored eyes over both men. Jinichiro took the pink plastic key from his wallet and handed it to her with both hands fully extended in front of him, dipping into a bow. She chuffed and took the key, rolling it between her fingers, then looking over the men again. It's old, but whatever. She turned and walked down an unfurnished corporate hallway, waving the pipe lazily in the air behind her coal black hair. Both gentlemen are welcome, she called back. Credit for one, and both can drink. The tattooed men stepped aside and gestured down the hallway. Jinichiro walked quickly, trying not to show how nervous he was and sneaking a hand up to rub at his sore jaw. Kato grabbed his shirt sleeve. What have you gotten us into? These guys are fucking connected, he hissed. Jinichiro shrugged him off with an irritated flick of his elbow. You'll see, up ahead, he said. Maintain your composure. They came to a lacquered red door, roughly ten feet high and inlaid with gold filigree in the shape of eels and pears. The woman favored them with a half-smile and pushed open the door. Jinichiro heard Kato gasp. Two dozen of the most beautiful women lounged on a dais in the open doorway. Their eyes slipped toward Kato and Jinichiro slowly, one after the other, like leaves falling from a tree, until all of them were looking. Some gave sensuous looks, pouts, glared, but most simply smiled, and each smile was as different as the sea might seem from a foreign shore. Happy smiles, lustful smirks. Some women grinned like idiots, and others made their lips into warm, demure curves like mothers or children, happy to see their patriarch after a long absence. Some smiles were sinister, others haughty, but all of them fell on Janichiro, and, more importantly, on Cato.
Credit for one, drinks for both, the woman said to the lounging girls, her voice quick and matter-of-fact. If any of them heard, they didn't give indication, but one by one they rose, until six of their number were leading Janichiro and Kato through a rippling red sexual hell, a maze of scarlet curtains and shadow. Shapes writhed on the wall in silhouette, making noises that caused both men's hearts to race. Eventually, they found their way to a small table, almost a mirror of the one they'd sat at with Sakura and her new, if temporary, entourage. A few pitchers of beer and liquor bottles were set at the table, along with a menu of what else might be ordered. Cato poured himself a glass, and the women poured in alongside him, giggling and playing with his tie and his hair. His face darkened with a blush. The credit is for one of them, Jinichiro said plainly, trying to ignore the woman who'd found a seat in his lap. What? Cato said dreamily, turning to Jinichiro. One of them, Jinichiro said, for a night. That's what one credit means. The credit is mine, but I'll give it to you if you help me. Cato's eyes widened and he looked over the women. He seemed so much more a goblin then, a lecherous and hideous thing all but burrowing into the hills and valleys of beautiful flesh. One of the women slipped her hand beneath Cato's shirt and his back arched. A line of drool broke the levy of his lips and dripped from his chin. If I help you, Cato said slowly, wiping. One of... one of them. He swallowed and nodded. Yes. Of, of course. No, uh, no problem. Then pick, Jinichiro said plainly. It took five minutes for Cato to finally decide on a woman, a foreign blonde with almond-shaped purple eyes, a genetic taint from being born in one of the exclusion zones, Jinichiro knew, but nothing contagious. She smiled softly and led Cato away by the hand. The other girls turned and waved sensuously to Jinichiro. I'll save one, a woman with dyed pink hair done up in curls. Her eyes were radiation green, but Jinichiro could see they were just contacts. I won't be going with anybody tonight, Jinichiro said to her. That's fine, she said with a tired smile. I have to stick around and hang out with you anyway. She shrugged. Part of the job, you know. I suppose, Jinichiro replied, having a drink from the closest bottle to soothe the pain in his tooth. The girl's eyes widened. Wow, you're really going after that, huh? She asked. Her eyes narrowed and she leaned in closer to look at his face. You hurt yourself? Your jaw is swollen. Um, yes, he replied. Earlier today. Her hand came up and grabbed his face before he could protest. She scooted closer on the bench and began to gently massage the swollen part. It hurt terribly, then felt better. He heard himself sigh. Then he realized her face was only inches from his own. Close enough to kiss. His heart fluttered. She smiled. There, how is that? She asked, leaning back and smiling. Her thigh remained close to his and he looked down to see a thick line of tanned skin showing between the top of the white lace stockings she was wearing and the bottom of her pink miniskirt. She touched his chin and brought his eyes back up to hers. Hey, don't get distracted now. Remember, you aren't going with anybody tonight. She smiled. Yes, he said, trying to move himself away from her and failing. Okay, I did say that. 
Chinichiro would bet anything that women like this would throw themselves at him if they found out he was middle management at Amagashi Tenancy and Mortgage. Women liked money. Money and power. So, tell me about yourself, she said. And he did. They talked for two hours, he about himself and she about him, though he never quite noticed that fact. What he did notice was the way she laid her hand on his arm and smiled when he told a joke, and the slight tilt of her head when she was interested in some fact that excited him. She asked for drinks, and he bought her a few, in addition to what was tabbed out on the key he'd brought along. Cato eventually stumbled back to the table, looking cleaner and even stronger than when they'd first arrived. He smiled and thanked the girl on Janichiro's arm for taking care of his friend. Janichiro's face burned. He only just then realized he hadn't ever asked the girl her name. Oh, tsk tsk, she said when he finally asked. You're so rude, Janichiro. She turned to Kato and twirled her finger in the air. Could you uh, turn around for a second, sweetie? He smiled and obliged her. Then she turned and kissed Janichiro on the mouth. Her tongue traced along his lips and, when he gasped, flicked over the end of his tongue. He felt her press something into his hand, a blue plastic key. Come back and see me sometime, she said with a smile. You work so hard, you know? You deserve some time to yourself, and I, well, she giggled and pushed her hair back over her ear. I could help you spend that time. I'd like that, he blurted as she stood up from the table, squeezing his hand one last time and winking at him. My name's Kara, she said, turning to leave. As she walked away into the flowing red curtains, her fingers slid up beneath the back end of her skirt and found the hemline of her panties which she adjusted with a single, smooth motion that revealed every curve and contour of her ass. Chinitro swallowed and looked at Cato, who was beaming back at him. Chinitro awoke in a fugue the next morning, bothered by a scratchy feeling in the back of his throat. He hadn't smoked in years. The habit had gotten too expensive when the city adopted ordinances against it, but he felt like he'd smoked a pack the night before. His tooth no longer hurt, which he was grateful for though he probably still needed to get it checked out. But that was a problem for another day. Now he had to get to work. A series of maglev trains carried him to work from his apartment in a large, fairly modern residential block outside the financial district. He could do the entire trip without ever seeing sunlight, but always managed a few detours that led him up to the surface city. There he could walk through grass parks and crowded streets alongside the rest of the morning commuters listening to other pedestrians yell at their phones and complain about the weather. A blinking blue light on his monitor at work told him he'd gotten a message from Cato, which he opened without waiting. He almost expected it to be some sort of fuck you for trusting Cato to return on their bargain after being paid, but was surprised to find it contained a message with just a single blue link. The hiragana over the jumbled English characters said only, Click me. He did, and several windows flickered open on his desktop. They moved aside and others snapped open and closed as miles of coded green text slipped upward over black backgrounds. Then everything closed and his monitor went dark. A second later, he heard the chime of the computer restarting and then he was looking at his home screen again. A window popped open and he nearly jumped out of his skin trying to cover it up with his hands. He looked around, but nobody had seen. It was a photo of a woman. The woman who'd taken Cato to the beds in the back of the club the night before, in fact. She was laying on her back, 
eyes half-lidded in ecstasy, and breasts bare before the camera that had taken the picture. The words, thanks, brother, were imposed above the woman's navel and kanji. Jinichiro cursed and then closed and deleted the file, shaking his head. He had half a mind to call Kato up and excoriate him over the incident when he saw a new program icon on his desktop. The text below it read, Progress Calculation in Kanji. He double-clicked it and a relatively simple spreadsheet opened up, displaying the names of his co-workers down a column to the left and a series of numbers in the columns to the right of it. Even as he watched, the numbers changed and the names in the left column jumped up and down, switching positions with every alteration in the score tally marked Total at the far right. God damn, Jinichiro whispered to himself. He found his own name just six places down from the top. It wasn't what he wanted to see, of course. He wanted to be in first place at all times, but it was hardly anything to be ashamed of. But, even as he looked, one of the names beneath his own changed position and knocked him from sixth down to eighth. He blanched. Jinichiro snapped open his workflow and began his daily task load, burning through his work straight through lunch. He worked until the numbers on the screen began to hurt his eyes, and the hunger in his stomach made him feel dizzy. A fit of coughing built in his chest over several hours. Deep, ugly coughs that rattled things loose in his lungs. He grabbed his wastebasket and spat a mouthful of clear mucus laced with black onto the paper he'd put in there yesterday. The sight of it disgusted him. The air in the red light district was badly polluted, and now he was going to spend the next week or so sick because of it. He slid the wastebasket out of sight and pulled his lunch, an instant ramen cup, out of his bag and ate. He cleared his workflow off the desktop to look at the progress calculation app Cato had sent him, sure he'd have at least regained sixth position by then, if not put himself near the top of the leaderboard. His stomach fell when he saw the numbers. He'd fallen, actually fucking fallen in the rankings, and all the way down to 12th place overall. Jinichiro braced his hands against the side of his desk so he wouldn't pass out. He was all but drowning in stress-induced nausea at this point. The numbers in the columns between his name and the column marked total made little, if any, sense at all. Nothing he'd done that day corresponded perfectly with any one of them, though he could see in a few columns where he lagged significantly behind the top three. The notations over them, all English characters, didn't mean anything to him, even though he spoke and read English fluently. There were nonsense abbreviations like APR and HEL and F-U-T-P-O-T, which meant nothing to him. He thought about asking Cato, but decided against it. The odd little man disgusted him, and he didn't want to find himself owing Cato any more favors. Or worse, giving the impression that he somehow valued the man's company. The thought of endless nights spent out with Cato as the man ogled women and drank his brain to pieces horrified Janichiro to no end. No, he would figure this out for himself. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. He worked through the night bell until the close of shop bell, when most personnel were hurried off campus by the night patrolman. During the day, he had figured out how only two of the columns worked, those marked P-R-O and W-R-K-H-R-S. The first was simply productivity, and measured every completed assignment. The second he translated to work hours, and measured every full hour of work he completed. They both rose faster than any other metric on the calculator. Nearly every other column seemed to remain static no matter what he did. Fortunately, they seemed to remain static for the other employees as well, which meant he simply had to outwork the other employees in a manner that also accommodated for the difference in the other columns. By the end of the day, he was happy to see he dragged his score back up to a 6. Janichiro rode the subway home with his notepad open on his lap tapping the screen with a stylus and moving figures around on a spreadsheet of his own design. This one was set up with Japanese writing in mind and flowed more sensibly from right to left and up and down, but it was still driving him insane trying to figure it out. By his calculations, Junichiro would have to work 16-hour days for the duration of the quarter, with carefully scheduled breaks and single-day weekends, in order to break one point above the third-place position. But, he figured, Nobody had ever won the Employee of the Month award twice in a row. Twice ever, really. So that's all he would have to do to win. And if he didn't win, he'd be a sure shot to get it on the next quarter. And then, all the hard work would have been worth it, because he would have finally made it. He thought of Kara, her body slender and tanned and lithe with youth, pouring him a beer and asking him how his day went. He'd make enough money in middle management that he'd maybe be able to coax her away from that line of work. He could pay her whatever she made there just to be his live-in maid, a beautiful woman who would wait on him and care about him and service his needs. Junichiro coughed and was dismayed to see more tarry phlegm darkening the sleeve of his shirt, turning it a smutty gray color. He really needed to get that looked at, though, when he checked his schedule, he couldn't figure when that might be. He woke the next day, all but ready to tie a gung-ho headband on like he was studying for finals in college. He felt good despite the constant nagging scratch at the back of his throat and the mild throb that had returned to his broken tooth. He bought a package of surgical masks at the corner store on the way to work and affixed one to his face as a courtesy for others, just in case he was getting sick. Being sick wasn't a good excuse for missing work, even when you weren't trying to outshine the sort of high-end talent that worked for Amagashi tenancy and mortgage. So Junichiro dug in his heels and got to work. His cough worsened over that first day and the week that followed, so that he had to make a special trip into the retail specialty district downtown to purchase a larger box of face masks. The trip carved two hours from his single off day, leaving him only six to sleep and another six to himself. He felt like a zombie riding the maglev train. He saw other masks on the train, or the normal, and figured some new bug must be hitting the city. A fat man wearing the staple black and white suit of a downtown salaryman 
had a powder blue mask strapped tightly from ear to ear. Pale and sweat-stippled flesh ringed the hollowed eyes over the mask. A clutch of giggling schoolgirls wearing the uniforms of a prominent downtown high school stood nearby, clearly forcing themselves not to notice the sick man. He stumbled into them when the train decelerated at Kyoto Station 3. All four squeaked and stepped out of his way. The sick man grabbed a vertical handrail and swung wildly with the momentum of the train, barely keeping himself standing. One of the girls asked him if he was okay. Yes, he replied, voice thick with phlegm. Fine. I'm fine. Thank you. Janitro saw a thick black lesion, like a scab from a terrible burn, capping the back of the man's hand like a tortoise shell. It had split from the strain of his near fall and leaked a thick yellow and black curd over his extended thumb and down the railing. Then the man was gone, lost in the flurry of bodies moving for the exit doors. When Janichiro's mind wandered in that second month, he thought of things he'd do if he weren't so work-focused. Interests he might take up if he were granted the free time that came with being a few rungs higher on the ladder and a few thousand rubles more wealthy every paycheck. The dreams came to him vividly as he plugged away at his computer, turning red columns black into black columns green. He saw himself sitting like an ancient feudal lord in an elaborate red and black kimono, committing equally elaborate kanji to rice paper and rhyme. Around him spread a room of exquisite lacquered red wood and tatami flooring. The apartment of a king apparent, the corners laden with simple treasures and ornate women, all redolent and awaiting his attentions. More specifically, waiting for him to finish and recite the poem he'd been working on for so long. Jinichiro looked up and gave the slightest nod to his attendants, who put their faces to the floor in reverence. He finished the last stroke on the paper and smiled over their prostrated backs at his doting wife, who kneeled beside their son, a strapping boy of just eight years. He looked down to read the poem. But all he could see were strips of jagged black scrawls, some alien and unholy tongue that forced painful images into his head. He tried to read them but found his tongue glued to the roof of his mouth. Genichiro raised his hands to his face and felt a surgical mask there, made of steel and stapled into the flesh of his gums. He searched the room for help from his attendants and saw only the shapes of their clothes and piles of thick black slush like fresh snow dirtied by the polluted air downtown. His wife had clawed out her eyes. The ruined organs lay in fleshy red tatters over her cheeks. Her face had gone slack and idiotic, jaw cracking open wildly side to side as she pulled strips of wet meat from their son with fish-hooked teeth. The boy screamed, but couldn't pull himself free. Junichiro snapped awake in a fit of coughing turning and grabbing his wastebasket just in time to hack globs of black snot into the bin liner. He felt fine for just a second, before something thick and slimy caught in the back of his throat, making him retch and convulse painfully until it shot free and collected on the back of his teeth. The taste of it nearly made him puke. Charcoal and salt and the smell of a bad fart. He couldn't touch it with his tongue to free it from his mouth, so he kept his face over the wastebasket and pulled it out with his fingers. What he found looked like a chunk of underdone eel meat. It stank, too, like shit and factory smoke. He wrapped it in the surgical mask he'd been wearing and stuffed it into the bottom of the trash can, where it might cause the least amount of stink. Then he stood and trotted to the bathroom with his face held low over his hand. 
Syrupy black liquid had come up with the thing, staining the cuff of his shirt sleeve like squid ink. It stank, too, as it puddled up in his hand. He barely managed to make it to the bathroom before he puked, filling one of the washroom sinks with half-digested instant ramen. Thin streamers of noxious black colored his vomit like soy sauce, which made him dry heave until a thin stream of yellow bile joined the gravy. Somebody moaned in the stall behind him, a medium-pitched voice that could have been either male or female. The stench of what he'd put in the sink was terrible. Janitro turned on the faucet and was grateful to watch the slurry vanish down the drain without incident. The person in the stall moaned again, a pleasurable gasp followed by a convulsion that shook the aluminum stall. Janitro turned in that direction and saw only closed doors. The light in the bathroom was too weak to break the shadows beneath them, where he might see the person's feet. It was bright enough, however, to show him his own grime-smeared face in the mirror. He looked like somebody had slapped him in the face with a handful of chocolate syrup. Another moan from the stall, this time accompanied by fevered, urgent whispering. Janitro glanced in that direction before burying his face in the sink and cleaning himself with handfuls of steaming hot water. Somebody cursed in ecstasy, and a stall door slammed open so hard it startled Janitro into smacking the top of his head on the faucet. He hissed and held the growing welt on the crown of his skull, turning to where the noise had come from. One of the ten or so cobalt blue stall doors swung slowly back and forth on its hinges, as though somebody had just been there, but the bathroom was empty. Empty but for the smell of something hot with sickness, fading even now. Janichiro felt queasy, not as though he'd be sick, but like he was about to faint. He turned to the mirror and saw his own haggard face. A black splotch the size of a small coin discolored the skin beside his lips. The briefest touch told him it wasn't something he could wash away. It was a permanent blemish, a part of him. And for some reason he remembered the woman in his daydream, the nightmare wife who devoured his screaming child, had looked just like Kara. Janitro worked two days without stopping to earn the time he needed off to make the doctor's appointment he'd scheduled. His cough had abated some, and his throat no longer itched when he woke up but a deep fatigue had settled in his bones. And there was an incessant itch in every muscle in his body that made him think of ants writhing beneath his skin. That feeling would come and go, and when it went, the coughing would return. The coughs were short and productive now, yielding hunks of stinking snot that Janitro almost found impressive. He couldn't imagine how his lungs were functioning with that tar coating their walls, but he found he could still breathe normally, for the most part. He grew short of breath after long walks, and he'd get dizzy fairly easily, but his work wasn't suffering. That's what mattered. In fact, he'd put himself squarely in fourth place in the rankings. Despite a drop in some of the numerical categories he didn't understand, his productivity and hours rankings were the highest in the company. He often got off in the middle of the night, when clocking out was simply a matter of walking up to the machine at your leisure. He was happy there weren't crowds of idiots begging him to waste his time on drinking and carousing in the red light district or trying to get him to join inner office sports clubs or sign up for contests. Good, hard work. And the rewards that came along with it. That's what he was interested in. Maybe when he ran this place, when the Employee of the Month award sat squarely in his hands and he was making decisions instead of living by them, he'd put an end to all that wastefulness. People had a purpose in life, and only so many productive hours to spend on it. 
It was disgraceful how ready they all seemed to be to throw that time away, wheedle it on drinking and carousing and all sorts of fun that just boiled down to spending money on useless things. They needed structure, discipline, purpose, profitable thoughts. But first, he needed to win that Employee of the Month award, and to win, he'd need to be healthy. Jinichiro knew he was desperately sick, and if whatever killed him killed him, well, that was an irritation he'd have to live with. Or not, he supposed. But nobody would stand over his grave and say he didn't give his all before the end. If it came to that, nobody would say he wasted one second of his life. The doctor's office sat in high-rise full of similar general practice offices near Tokyo Station in downtown City 17. Jinichiro had visited the office only twice, both times to receive a physical as necessitated by his insurance policy. The walls were a stippled plastic material he figured would both be easy to wash and echo less than a flat plastic wall. Still, the room felt like a chamber in some submarine or spaceship, hollow and clean and painted a stainless white that ran to yellow in bad lighting. Jinichiro's doctor saw him after one half hour in the waiting room, which Jinichiro had accounted for on his schedule and another 15 minutes sitting in the exam room, which left Jinichiro squirming with impatience. The doctor was a squat, sturdy woman with shoulder-length black hair and a gauzy pink surgical mask. She apologized for the wait upon entering the room without looking at him. Jinichiro accepted her apology as she flipped through a folder on the digital clipboard she'd brought into the room. Polyurethane paper shot through with projection chips populated his vital statistics onto a page for her to read. Jinichiro soured when he saw his name spelled with the wrong kanji. You are sick? The doctor asked, still looking over the folder. You don't get sick often. Is it the cold or the flu, you think? I'm not sure, Jinichiro said. I've had this bad cough. Bad cough? The doctor said, nodding. She put her stethoscope against his chest while still holding the folder at arm's length. Jinichiro saw numbers change on the page. Then the doctor snapped the folder shut and left the room. She waved a hand as she walked out of sight. See the nurse at the front desk when you leave. Jinichiro sat for a moment longer, half expecting her to come back and actually look him over, but she didn't. He stood awkwardly and made his way out to the hall, as sterile and coldly white as the rest of the building. Blue and red lines along the floor read reception and emergency exit in a mix of English and katakana. The letters cut out so they showed the lightly patterned floor tiles. Somebody slammed a fist or something else soft and heavy against an exam room door in the hall ahead of Jinichiro. The doors were the only non-white things, aside from the mirrored black surface of an information touchscreen that popped on and off according to motion in the hallway. The only closed door was the one the noise seemed to be coming from, tucked into a corner where the hallway turned back toward reception. Another bang echoed toward Jinichiro, a single heavy thud that he could feel putting pressure on the soft bits inside his ear. It made him feel sick. There were words, too. Some sort of soft mumbling punctuated by the occasional raspy cough. A thin, black plastic pennant hung into the hallway over the door, one of a set of five of other colors meant to alert staff to whatever was going on inside the rooms. He'd seen the nurse who'd escorted him through the hall flipping them back and forth before shutting the door on him. But what did black mean? Another slam at the door and this one hard enough that Jinichiro could feel pressure build at the back of his eyes from the noise of it. Something popped inside his ear and he felt a surge of relief as whatever it was depressurized and relaxed. 
Giddy endorphins flooded his body, and he felt himself shuddering from a mild head high. The motion-sensing screen flickered on, bathing him in red and blue and red and blue and red and blue and red and blue. The image on the screen was a big-eyed plushy cat wearing a polka-dot tutu and a doctor's jacket. It waved a star-shaped wand and a title card appeared, reading, Stress develops lifelong problems. Relax and take it easy now. Another bang on the door near the end of the hall. Now he could hear the mumbled whisperings much more clearly, even make out a few words. Going to be late. The voice was masculine and cracked with fatigue, maybe even madness. Two warnings? Please, give me one and I'll resign right now. You have to take care of yourself, Mr. Salaryman, the plushy cat in the tutu said on the screen. Her voice was the irritating falsetto all these cartoons seemed to revel in, a tone that scratched at Janichiro's brain. Right on the inside, like a thin little kitten nail was running the razor between the meat of his cerebrum and the inside of his skull. He could almost see it in real time, carving little slices of connective tissue off the bone that curled up and pushed dents into the gray matter. Fucking tell you about it. Number one in sales, number one in the district. Have you gone out to exercise? We live in such a bright, beautiful world. Get out there today and take a deep breath. Relax. Jinichiro steadied himself on the wall and watched as the little cat turned her wand into a paper fan and waved it over the face of a stylized salaryman. Another little plushy cat, only wearing a black and white suit and black-rimmed glasses. His face was purple, and his eyes were X's stitched in black. The person banging on the door was pulling hard at the handle now, jittering the door in its frame. Cunts love this shit. Oh dear, I think he's worked himself a little too hard. Fucking whip it out and show him. Do your part to keep yourself healthy. See, I can afford it. Who the fuck do you think I am? Janichiro watched the purple-faced salaryman plushy swell. The belly bloated, and then the thing's neck and its face. The stitching on its eyes and mouth gave way. Fluffy white cotton erupting from the newly torn holes. The female plushy dropped the fan and fell on her bottom pushing herself away from the exploding face of the salaryman plushy as black gel oozed from its eyes and mouth. Tell those fucking cunts I'm the boss. Multicolored static spread out from the rotting cat plushy's face, a brilliant nothing of green and purple and white. Blocks and bars of black moved out of that space across the screen in jittering pseudo-geometric patterns. The female plushy screamed, but her voice was down-pitched and static-riddled. Corrupted the same way the image on the screen was corrupted. Fucking cunts. She tried to climb up the side of the screen as the corrupted data ate the title card and the stylized pastel backdrop of a city street. The last Janichiro saw of her, the little plush was crying big cartoon tears, desperately trying to carve her way into the left side of the frame using the wand she changed back from the paper fan. Then the screen had snapped off in a fit of blue static. The receptionist only offered Janichiro one of two choices. He could pay 40,000 yen for a two-day doctor's note, or 400,000 yen for a two-week doctor's note. That's the common option, she said with a polite smile. Polite, but tinged with a disconcerting undertone of disgust. The way someone might look at an addict in the family who says he's going to get clean, but he needs to borrow some money to get a place first. Janichiro shook his head. I'm here because I need to go to work. He said, I'm sick. I want to get better. What did the doctor say about how sick I was? 
Sick enough for a two-week note, the receptionist said with another faintly ugly smile. But not sick enough for the one-month note. If you can't afford the note, there are cheaper clinics on the lower level of the building. I'm afraid they're less reputable than us, and many employers have them blacklisted. What about my medicine? Do I, do I get medicine? Do I need it? Jinichiro asked. His head swam with fatigue. He'd been hallucinating the little anime plushies. He hadn't seen that stuff. He was just tired. Very, very tired. The nurse gave him a long look, and then a look of recognition dawned on her face. For that type of appointment, you'll have to pay a higher premium, sir, she said, grabbing a digital folder from a drawer. We didn't realize you were in the market for that sort of treatment. My sincerest apologies. Jinichiro gave her a stupid look, not understanding and too tired to hide his confusion. The prices are similar, however. 50000 for a two-week prescription and 500000 for a one-month script. Our doctors can even prescribe medical-grade heroin. A six-month script for one million yen, and that includes fill costs and, ahem, <laughs> discreet home delivery. Jinichiro thanked her quietly and stumbled out the lobby. He stopped looking at the mirror for the last month leading up to the quarterly review. What he saw only made him nervous. Irritated. Large black splotches covered the area around his mouth like coffee stains. If he looked too long at them, he could almost see them moving, flowing beneath the skin like ink dropped into a cup of water. His mouth tasted bad all the time now, too. He hadn't been able to brush his teeth in weeks because of how bad the toothpaste hurt his gums. Lesions had opened there that wept tears of black grease. They would occasionally soak through his surgical mask when he talked to people or when one of the now violent coughing spells came over him. He would always find out much too late, after somebody asked him if he'd been chewing on a pen, or if he knew he'd spilled coffee on himself, and so he'd taken to avoiding people entirely. Which wasn't difficult. He now snuck into work early and left late. Sometimes he didn't leave at all. Nobody reprimanded him for his extreme work ethic, or sent security guards by to kick him out after hours. Nobody seemed to care how many extra hours he spent at his workstation. In fact, nobody seemed to notice at all. Just like nobody noticed him there on that last night before the quarterly review, in place until just after midnight, collating and correlating and finally hitting the save and quit buttons in the top right corner of the screen. Nobody saw the insane glee that lit up Jinichiro's eyes when he opened Kato's program and saw his name at the very tip, fucking top, of the spreadsheet. The number one position. He'd done it. Jinichiro took the quick train home and slept in his bed for four whole hours before returning to work the next day. He'd almost made himself late, scarfing down everything he could find in his tiny kitchen. An incredible black hole type of hunger had gotten into him during his shower. There was this sweet, mushroomy smell he couldn't quite get out of his head, and every thought of it made his stomach rumble. Meat he realized after downing his tenth and last cup of instant noodles. I want meat. He hadn't had good, honest protein in months, and it hadn't been a staple of his diet for perhaps a year before that. He had the money for it, just not the time to purchase and prepare it. The same sweet, rotten smell got to him on the subway. Packed in amongst the people, it was stronger there, so that he was almost dizzy with need. His eyes felt glazed foggy with lack of focus as his nose tasted the air. That morning, 
The trains were packed with people so that he and every other passenger's body were crushed together in the maglev as it hurtled silently down the line. The swaying motion of a deep turn made Janichiro lose balance, and he fell against the body of a young woman standing between him and the bulkhead. She glanced quickly up at him, and then resumed that thousand-yard commuter stare, looking politely at nothing. Her eyes were large and black and beautiful, her skin an almost opposite shade of white. She put on a deeply red lipstick that morning that complemented the peach blouse and charcoal pantsuit she wore. It's her, Janichiro realized. She's the smell. There was no evidence for this realization. It came upon him like a revelation and so dominated his thoughts that he allowed the next sweeping turn of the train to knock him into her again. He breathed in through his nose, taking in the smell of her. She'd shampooed her hair either that morning or the night before, and below that, she smelled of deodorant and perfume and hand lotion, and of the light sweat now soaking the hems of her bra from the heat of the crowd inside the train. Excuse me, she whispered insistently, and he could feel her pushing against him. He'd lost himself in her scent and was now leaning bodily into her, squishing her against the plastic wall beside the train doors. He could hear people whispering about him nearby, but he couldn't push himself away. The smell of her was too good. I'm sorry, he mumbled. I'm not well. Can you help me stand back up? Please just get off of me, she whispered. Embarrassment and horror colored her voice, and he could feel a sharp pain in his stomach as she jammed an elbow into him. But it did her no good. He just kept leaning against her, drinking in every scent, thin or thick, that wafted off her body, even the mustardy tang of her fear. The train came to a stop and she struggled to get free of him, to get out the door and away from this caustic pervert who trapped her on the train. But he didn't move, and neither did she. He felt something warm and wet dribble over his chin and realized he was drooling. Then somebody grabbed him by the collar and he was being pushed face forward into one of the vertical handrails. It didn't hurt. It should have. But it didn't. The girl slipped away without a word, and he watched her go with wide-eyed desire, horrific need naked in his eyes. People around him whispered words like pervert and freak as they pushed past him roughly to get off the train. He felt sharp things, keys and pens and elbows and fingertips, digging into him purposefully, maliciously as they passed, a polite reminder of how to behave on a train. Then it was over, and he was almost completely alone in the car. The dozen or so people remaining hadn't been close enough in the crush of bodies to see how he'd mistreated the girl, or didn't care enough to acknowledge him. They kept that same distant, vacant expression on their faces. Faces that held no interest in the world flickering by at 500 miles per hour outside. Faces that showed no knowledge that they too had seen what Janichiro had seen. His putrescent black drool smoldering crooked shapes into the shoulder of the girl's suit jacket. Light yellow smoke wicking up into the air as she fled to the relative safety of the subway platform. Director Yoshimoto held his hands to the sky to quiet the ostensibly silent employees of Amagashi Tenancy and Mortgage. Jinichiro watched in a daze as he gave his usual speech. Profits were up, he said, way, way up, and, wouldn't you believe it, costs were way, way down. Every employee in this great company had contributed to that success, but today, they were there to congratulate just three who'd taken the flag and run further than anybody. The Employees of the Month. Sana Doshi, Yoshimoto said, 
announcing the first name. Jinichiro looked out over the heads of the other employees, all visible now that they were standing above their cubicles. One day those lemming eyes would find Jinichiro up there in the rafters, gazing down at all of them and seeing none of them. Tomas Winterbottom, Yoshimoto said, and more clapping followed. Jinichiro searched the crowd for the unfamiliar name and found a distant shadow moving amongst the other distant shadows. A man moving through the dark. A sound that could only be a circular saw cutting steel echoed through the room, and nobody turned to find it but Jinichiro. He'd club the guy over the head if you didn't hear his name called. And Hana Watanabe, Yoshimoto said. Jinichiro looked around in horror. Mistakes had been made. He looked around for whoever had been running that fucking circular saw. It was their fault. They'd fucked all reality sideways. He remembered the spreadsheet on his computer and bent over to turn on the screen. Yoshimoto was talking about other stuff now. Nothing important. Nothing worth listening to now that he'd been robbed. Maybe he could print the sheets out and ask if there'd been a mistake. Maybe they could correct what had happened. When he saw the numbers, his knees buckled slightly and he swooned nearly falling over his desk. Not only was he not in first place anymore, or even the top three, he wasn't even in the top ten. He had to scroll down to find himself three entire pages down in 24th position. Twenty-fucking-four. It took him several seconds of frantic reading to figure out what had happened. The numbers in the other categories, the ones with senseless markings he didn't understand, had all changed. He still led in productivity and hours worked, still outshone every living soul in the company, but the other numbers had utterly sank him. Another rough set of calculations told him that he would have been clean at the bottom of the list if it weren't for his outstanding productivity ratings. Without those, he'd have been beat out by the likes of Cato. Degenerate, drunk-off-his-ass, selling company secrets Cato. It was all too much. Too much. Jinichiro shot to his feet in protest. He wanted to shout that there's been some terrible mistake at director Yoshimoto, but all he managed was a great quaking cough. Every head in the room turned to him and he fell to his knees, half because of the shame of their pitying looks, half because he could no longer stand. Honestly, he could barely even breathe. Jinichiro sucked in another shuddering breath and coughed into the trash can, ripping his mask away from his face and retching. Perhaps people could hear him, but he didn't care. Couldn't care. It was all too much. He'd been robbed. And now all he could do was sit here, coughing and retching into a trash can alone, the way he had all this month and the two before it. He breathed in again and smelled that sweet, heady stink of mushrooms and something else and coughed something wet and sloppy into his mouth. It tasted like the end of life itself. He spit the glob into the waste basket and heard a sharp, metallic rattling sound. In the scant light leaking into his dark little cubicle, he could see a mass of black liquid in the bottom of the can, stuck to it like tar. And suspended in that, moving slowly in concert with the molasses spread of gunk he'd hawked out of his lungs, rolling up like primordial mosquitoes in amber, were ten or twelve of his own blackened teeth. What followed came in a swirl of colorless light and dark, feels and sensations, fabric moving in the human stink of shaking hands and close conversations, 
She won? Yes. And there were free drinks at Harry Snyder's downtown. Janitro watched everything from a distance, feeling like a cloud of mosquitoes at the edge of a lake, a thing of no more form or substance than static, a cluster of primordial need, hunting for blood and sex and somewhere safe from the inevitable crush of death. Was he even here anymore? Maybe not. Maybe not. The invitation came, and he took it, shuffling along at the back of the group much in the same way he had all those months ago, when he'd set his nose to the grindstone to unknowingly shave it clean off his face. He found somebody in the crowd he thought looked like Cato and grabbed his shoulder roughly to turn him around. It wasn't Cato, and the man gave him a horrified, confused look before putting his eyes back to the ground and crossing the street away from the crowd of co-workers. His co-worker stopped at some gimmick bar and he kept walking, trying to think of what he could do to change the results. He was too sick to keep going the way he had, too sick almost to walk. Even now the world swam around him, a confusion of dark brick and harshly smeared neon rainbows and the rolling orange thicket of clouds that always seemed to hang over the sky at night in the city, in City 17, in their district, in the whole world. Filth and water intermingled overhead to pour down something nobody could drink that ate holes and walls and eyes if you looked up at the storm. The rain wanted to wash the whole city away, and the city persevered. An undying thing, a thing made by people who would never love their creation, who poured all their hate and derision and snobby genuflections to the poor and overworked into every gray slap of mortar between every cheap, moldering brick. A lichyard of the living full of graves with nothing written on them, because there was nothing in this place worth remembering. There were no employees of the month, he knew. No nicer offices and nicer jobs and fair return for fair work. There was only this. Walking alone in a bitter rainstorm that washed the color out of you, thinned you until you dripped away into the sewers, carried away to the ocean with all the other poisons to make the dolphins die. Something caught in his chest and he bent and pulled the mask away. What came up this time had to be critical to his life functions. A wet, angular thing the size of a sponge and so black with rot it melted into the gutter like a dirty snowball. He regained himself a second later and saw a familiar glow in the distance. He walked to it, eyes wide and with his hands forward in front of him, as though he might scare the neon sign away for having noticed it. Kashimura Group, it read in glowing red kanji. Jinichiro found the blue plastic key he'd been given back at the end of last quarter, when he'd come here with Kato. He looked through the clear plastic at the door, and found the red light turned the plastic an almost headache-inducing shade of purple. Indigo, he knew. He went inside. The same woman in the elaborate red kimono brought him to a table in the back. He had to summon the nerve to tell her he wanted a room. They could save the table for somebody else. Kara wasn't amongst the group of girls at the entrance this time, though there was a woman who looked almost exactly like her. The same green hair, the same punky outfit, but all slightly different. All not quite there. He asked for Kara by name and this same girl showed up, sliding her arm around his and resting her cheek against his shoulder as they walked. The woman in the red kimono seemed one with the flowing red curtains hanging over the room making her way through it like a box jellyfish in a sea of red kelp. She seemed as much there as not, only the occasional hint of white skin 
or the reflection of light off her perfect hair showed him the way to her. The woman, maybe it was Kara, asked him about work and he lied. He told her he was well respected in his field, though he wouldn't bother her with the exact details of what he did. He told her he'd been awarded a quarterly performance merit and that he was out tonight celebrating. She cooed and awed with everything he said, and on the few occasions when he looked down at her, her eyes were wide and open and honest. But he could feel the disconcerting lie beneath the skin of her. She would never care. Nobody would. No woman for certain. They weren't for him. He wasn't for them. He could dangle a million pounds of gold before her nose, and she would say the same thing. In this world, Jinichiro's Sato meant nothing. He was a number amongst numbers, and that number wasn't so high. The room looked like he imagined a love hotel room should look. Cold and sterile on the outsides, but outfitted in soft romantic pinks and blues and reds. Every surface was soft somehow, except for the walls and the few exposed wooden or acrylic surfaces. The bed held a series of heart-shaped pillows in every color of the rainbow, set over a bedspread of heavily piled synthetic white fur. Kara took a seat on the bed, kicking off her shoes and giving Junichiro a look like no woman ever had. There had been women, women he hadn't had to pay for, but they fell in and out of his life as though he were broken like a vending machine unable to retain the coins put into its slot, until one day the management left it out on the street corner for recycling. Did you have sushi? She asked again. Again? He'd been daydreaming. I'm sorry, he said. What did you say? Sushi. I think you got some eel sauce on your mask. She pointed at his surgical mask and he raised a finger to it. The finger fell over something wet and almost burning hot. He turned away from her and pulled the mask off, looking at the stain she'd seen. It looked like the silhouette of a few coins resting atop each other, overlapping discs of smoking black waste. He put the mask back on slowly. I'm sorry, I don't have another one, he said. That smell was in the air again, sweetness and mushrooms. The kind of sweetness that made your stomach ache. The kind of mushrooms that gave you visions. Perhaps it was the smell of hell. If he suddenly found himself there, he would be anything but surprised. It's okay, silly, she said. He turned back to her and saw she was pointing a finger at him. But you better keep it on if you think you're going to get me sick. She smiled and he smiled back, though she couldn't see. Her smile dipped and her head with it, a practiced move that slid the cottony shoulder of her blouse down her arm. Oh, she said. Look at that. Janichiro stepped forward and slid the arms of the blouse down off her shoulders, nearly swooning at the feel of her skin under his fingers. She was the first woman he'd touched like this in years, the first human skin he'd touched in months. He should be ecstatic, he thought, but he wasn't. All that remained of what should have been there was a dull ache, a hole where that part of him should be. I wanted to be a poet he said flatly, looking at her body as she stood before him and turned, undressing in slow, loping movements that left her suddenly in her underwear, and then not even in that. She went over to the entertainment center past the foot of the bed and turned on the radio. A thumping sexual beat came over the speakers and she writhed in time with it. 
My father told me that was a foolish pastime, Janichiro continued, pulling off his jacket and then the shirt and tie. He undressed like a machine, pulling off unneeded layers and discarding them. Kara came to him and ran her fingers over his chest, either not noticing or purposefully not mentioning the broad black discolorations in his skin. The flesh over them was translucent and yellow, shiny like egg yolk. You're a poet? she asked. Her mouth found his throat and she bit gently at the skin there, working down over his collarbone and up the side of his neck. I wanted to be, Junichiro said. But my father told me they didn't need poets. The world got all the poets it ever wanted centuries ago and didn't need any more. That's so sad, Kara said. But you're successful now, aren't you? She grabbed him inside his underwear and he thought he might sigh from how good it felt. But it didn't feel good. It didn't feel at all. Yes, Junichiro said his eyes dark and dull and affixed on something not in this world, but in the next, or maybe even in the world after that. I have accomplished everything I can in this life. It's a thing people know about me. You wanna fuck me, Mr. Successful Businessman? Kara asked, her tongue flicking his earlobe. I've never fucked a successful businessman before. I bet you're so big. Her candidness made him sick all of a sudden. Chills rolled over his skin. I bet a big man like you might break me in half. He looked at her, and she didn't see that something deep inside him had gone. His eyes were the black beads at the end of a crab's eye stalk. She reached up and tugged at the string of his surgical mask. Kara screamed when it fell away, but nobody could hear over the music. The twisted hole that was left of Janichiro's mouth spewed something foul and black into her face a reeking tar that burned when it hit her. One of his teeth slid down through the hissing slush where her cheek had been, a rolling white and black thing that could have been a dead fish floating on the night sea. She tried to push him away, but she couldn't breathe through what he'd spit on her. It closed off her nose and throat, and soon she was writhing in preasphyxia on the bed with Janichiro up between her legs. His face was pressed against hers, his tongue long and thick and spotted like a cow's tongue in black and white and red. He slurped the melted flesh off her face, and the last thing she thought was how ugly he was making her, how ugly she'd be now, how nobody liked ugly girls. Nobody in the whole wide world wanted a fucking ugly... Janichiro sat on the bed with Kara's head in his lap, savoring each of her delicate white fingers as he degloved them with his warped mouth. Little flesh remained above her neck but part of an ear and the dyed green hair. Her breasts, still whole but streaked with smoking grime and blood, lay sadly flat on her chest. Outside the door, the hotel operated as it always had, nothing new or different but the day and the customers, and those no more new or different themselves. But the door had changed some. It had been a simple wooden thing when they'd walked in, with brass fittings and a black plastic card reader set over the handle. Now there was a great steel door in its place with nonsensical kanji that looked vaguely like ocean and a dash, followed by the number 45 in English. Jinichiro, the boy who had wanted to become a poet, might have sensed something odd about this door. Might have been afraid of it, and rightfully so. Jinichiro, the man, might have stressed over the possibilities, the futures, such an odd thing might lead to. 
But Jinichiro, the thing he'd become, could do what no Jinichiro before it had ever done. It could live in the moment. A smell came to it, a scent of sweetness and mushrooms, and it left the smoking, green-haired corpse on the bed to stand before the thing. Blackened flesh bubbled and split, weeping hot blood onto the sheets. The Jinichiro thing could see something of its own face in the polished surface of the door. His head no longer kept the right shape. It was twisted and offset at the cheekbones. Wrong. Beneath his wet black eyes sat the overly broad black hole where his mouth had once been, where his new mouth was. Again he smelled that scent of sweetness and mushrooms. And so the thing that had been Jinichiro Sato stepped through the door, no longer seeking the fortunes of an uncertain future, and content to live in the moment. was quarterly review what did you think have you had a job that just crushed you felt so pushed to succeed you put your health and happiness in the gutter have you ever melted a call girl with caustic black goo before eating her face let me and the proper authorities know by jumping online and throwing the west side fairy tales a shout out via social media our handle is at ws fairy tales on twitter and west side fairy tales on facebook and instagram you can also send us an email at our direct line westside fairy tales at gmail.com. People email us all the time and we love hearing from fans, so don't hesitate to reach out. For those of you wanting a deeper dive into the West Side Fairy Tales or just looking to toss a few dollars our way in thanks, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash westsidefairytales. For just a dollar, you can get access to early episodes and update videos, and five dollars or more gets you access to exclusive behind-the-story videos, your name in the donors section of our website, and even some pretty cool merchandise. Next month's story takes us on a run through the California desert as a combat veteran struggles with his demons while super marathoning from Barstow to Camp Pendleton. Full disclosure, I'm a Marine Corps combat veteran, and this story is extremely personal to me. In essence, it's a sort of love letter to the guys I served with and all the infantry grunts who served in the Iraq War. Without getting further into it, just let me assure you that it's a great story, pretty goddamn scary and really heartfelt. So I hope you'll listen in November when I bring you the next West Side Fairy Tale from Barstow back home. And until then, as always, stay safe out there. West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. All content here in copyright 2018, Tyler Bell.
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning Westside Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast, due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.